Well, good morning. I'm Carmen. That's a powerful clip, isn't it? As we look at this whole idea of forgiveness and what it means to be irresistible as a church in forgiving one another. Forgiveness is so powerful that a show like 60 Minutes takes a story that is so small by comparison to other news media things and says this is worth reporting on because forgiveness is a powerful thing. I love that clip. We're going to be talking about that, this whole concept of forgiveness today. And one of the things that I love in that clip so much is when she talks about forgiveness is not about the other person. It doesn't diminish what they've done, but forgiveness is for me. Forgiveness isn't about the other person. It's not about diminishing what they've done, but forgiveness is for me. Now, I used to think that I wasn't the kind of person that really had issues of forgiveness. I'm not the kind of person who tends to hold a grudge, at least not on the outside. Thing is, I've been a Christian long enough to learn how to sin on the inside instead of the outside. And so what I've discovered is that a lot of my issues and unforgiveness aren't ones that necessarily manifest outward, but they definitely manifest inward. There are a lot of different ways that you can manifest unforgiveness. And yes, sometimes it comes out as that snarky high school, I'm going to say mean things about you. Sometimes it comes out that way, but it manifests in a lot of other ways as well. Sometimes unforgiveness also manifests as that slow, simmering bitterness. That whole, I'm going to hold something against you. A long memory of ways that someone has offended you or hurt you and refusing to forgive that leads to like a sense of disdain or contempt for the other person. Sometimes unforgiveness manifests itself in the, in the belief that the person who offended you is a little less than as a person, that they're not really worth as much as other people because of the way that they hurt you. Sometimes unforgiveness manifests itself in the way that I shut down emotionally. I'm not going to hate you, but I'm just not going to care about you anymore. And I become cold and closed off. Sometimes unforgiveness manifests itself in the way that I refuse to feel anything at all for someone because it feels a little bit too risky or too unsafe to risk being hurt again. Sometimes it manifests itself as hopelessness, feeling stuck in that place that I don't think it's ever going to change, and so I'm going to write that person off as irredeemable. Sometimes it manifests itself as, as being victimized and being stuck in that place because I can't move forward until you do what you need to do, and so I'm stuck in this place of always being the victim. Man, unforgiveness has a lot of ways that it manifests itself. And I realize I got some forgiveness issues. I don't know. Can anyone relate? You resonate with any of that? Okay, good. Lots of nods. So we're in it together. We're going to take a look at this today because this is a hard issue that we all have faced in one form or another, whether it's something that we externalize to the people around us or whether it implodes on the inside of us. Forgiveness is an issue that we need to address. And I realize I don't want to be the kind of person that lives in that, in that state of unforgiveness where it kind of corrodes my soul, making me bitter or snarky or uncaring or cold. I don't want to be that person. Now you have a rock in your hand that you were handed when you came in. Does everybody have your rock? I want you to pick that up, hold it in your hand. If you don't have a rock, you can raise your hand and someone will get a rock to you. I don't really know that someone's ready to give a rock to you, but I'm trusting that someone will get a rock to you because y'all agree that way. (laughs) All right, so everybody has a rock. I want you to hold that rock in your hand. 
And that rock, it's, it's cold and it's hard. And it re- represents the places in your heart, the places in your life where you are harboring unforgiveness. The places that may be slowly corroding inside of you. And I want you to just hang on to it through the course of this service. And I want you to think about, um, there's, a, there's a passage in Ezekiel 36. And in this passage, God is speaking to the nation of Israel through his prophet Ezekiel. And essentially, this is a time in Israel's history when the, the country had been scattered, the nation had been scattered, they had been exiled, they were broken, they had been kind of beaten up. And in this passage, God is giving them hope. And he's saying, you know what, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to regather you. I'm going to restore what was lost. I'm going to bring you home. And there's this beautiful passage in um, Ezekiel 36. And he says this, and I will give you a new heart as he's bringing them home, as he's restoring them. He's saying, and I will give you a new heart with new and right desires. And I will put a new spirit in you. And I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. So I want you to hang on to this rock. Just let it play in your fingers during the service. And as you feel it in your hands throughout the course of the next 30, 40 minutes or whatever, I want you to remember God's desire to take out a heart of stone and to give you a heart of flesh, one that's soft and pliable and moldable. And just see what God wants to do inside of you during the service today, okay? So just hang on to that stone because we need to learn how to walk out this thing of forgiveness even if it's hard because forgiveness leads to freedom and it leads to hope and it's all about coming home to the heart of God again. Forgiveness isn't really about the other person. Forgiveness is for me and it's a thing between me and God and there's something that God does inside of us when we learn how to forgive. There's a, there's a way that we learn how to be when we learn how to forgive. And we become the kind of people that reflect the nature of who God is. In Ephesians 4, it says this, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of malicious behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Don't you want to be that person? Kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God has forgiven us. That's the thing that makes us irresistible. As people, as a church, that's the kind of thing that captures the attention of a show like 60 Minutes because there's something unique and different and beautiful about living into that kind of grace and forgiveness. So that's what we're unpacking today. What does that irresistible forgiveness look like and what does it require of us? So if you have your outlines, you can pull those out of your program guide, get ready to fill in a blank or two or take some notes as we go along today. The first thing we're going to talk about is that irresistible forgiveness requires letting go of what is owed. Letting go of what is owed. Now, we all have those you owe me stories, right? There's times when you've kind of taken one for the team, like you owe me. I remember one time we were at a dinner party and Scott abandoned me at this dinner party with this guy that I was sitting across from, this man who was large and he didn't smell so good. And he had this really big beard. Oh, I just hit my thing. Sorry. He had this really big beard and mustache and he spit when he talked. And even more, when he was eating, he spit food 
food as he talked, and this food would lodge in this mustache and beard. And then as he continued to talk, the chunks of stuff that were in his beard would fling across the table and onto my plate and into my water glass. Not kidding. Floaties in my water glass from the projectile coming from this man. But I took one for the team, and I stayed with this man, kind of kept him contained while everyone else went off and enjoyed. And I remember afterwards, I looked at Scott, and I was like, buddy, you owe me. <laughs> you owe, at least I get a dinner out of this, one I can actually eat because there's stuff all over my plate. Like, you owe me. We know what that feels like, right? I deserve something in response to whatever it is that just happened. You owe me. And we hang on to it when we feel like someone owes us something, right? You owe me something. Relationally, we do this. I deserve something from you. When you've hurt me, I deserve something from you. You owe me an apology. You owe me some serious penance. You owe me some groveling. I deserve to get something in return for the hurt that you've done to me. You need to feel bad. You need to make it up to me in some way. You owe me. And our culture perpetuates this, right? Our culture is all about like getting what you deserve, getting what you're due. We sing songs like, let it go, let it go, but we don't mean it. <laughs> we don't want to let anything go. You owe me. That's what our culture tells us. And God says there's a different way. And you know what? Sometimes, legitimately, maybe someone really does owe us. Maybe sometimes it feels like there is a legitimate something that I should get in return, an apology that I should get from however it is that I've been hurt. But it doesn't always happen. And so what do we do with that? This summer I had to work through something that was really hard. I had to confront a wound that was very deep and it was very old something that went way back, and it was one of those things that, that just kind of hung out in my life for a really long time, and I had kind of pushed it aside, kind of pushed it down and pretended that it didn't really impact me. It hadn't affected me. Just kind of said, nope, I'm just going to forget that that thing is even there. And then this summer, God said, mm -mm, it's time. You need to take a look at that. And as I began to confront this thing, I began to realize how significantly this wound had impacted me, how much it had shaped so much of the way that I look at the world, so much of the way that I look at myself, that I look at my relationships with other people, the way I even look at my relationship with God. This thing was big. It, it had created this lens through which I saw the whole world. And I didn't even know that that lens was there because I'd been looking through it through most of my life. And as I began to confront it and God began to peel back layers on that over the course of the last several months, I started to get really angry. I got really angry that someone had the power to impact my life in that way. It wasn't fair and it wasn't right. And the people that surrounded that situation didn't respond very well either. And so all of those people, they owed me something, right? Really, they did. They should have done it differently. It shouldn't have happened the way that it happened owe me. And I was angry about that. And I was hurting about that. But here's what God showed me. In my situation, I'm never going to get 
what I deserve, quote unquote, to get. There's no way to go back and undo. And there are certain pieces of that that can never be undone or redone. And I am not going to get what I'm owed in that. So I have a choice. I can forgive and let go of what is owed and let God do something in me to move forward. Or I can hang on to the pain and the bitterness and the anger of that. And I had to grieve it as a loss, as a significant loss. To say, I am going to grieve what maybe should have happened in this and then let it go. Because if I wait to release the hurt until I get what I'm due, I'm going to be stuck in that place forever. Forgiveness is for me. It's not as much about the other person as it is between me and God. Because if I decide that I'm going to hang on to what I'm owed, I'm going to spend the rest of my life angry and in that place of feeling like a victim and bitter and in that poor me state. And when I live in that place of you owe me, it leads to this mentality that I like to call the if you, then I game. Anyone ever play the if you, then I game? I loved this game for a really long time, and here's how it works. We look at the other people in our life, and we say, if you do what you need to do, then I will do what I need to do. If your behavior changes, then I will change the way that I am reacting to you. If you make amends for this, then I can move forward with my healing. If you, then I. It's a, it's a great game to play. Yeah, it's really productive and really helpful. Because you know what it does? It ties you to that other person. I tie myself to that person, making myself bound to them, and my healing process becomes contingent upon their behavior or their attitude, which is something that I have absolutely zero control over. And if I tie my healing to that person's process and they don't do what they need to do, I am stuck. I can't control someone else's process. I can only control my own. I can only respond to my own stuff. And I can choose to either hold on to a process that plays the if you, then I game that says you owe me and I'm not going to let it go until I do and be stuck there forever. Or I can choose to engage in a process that releases that mentality and leads me to a place of freedom and a place of hope. I met with my spiritual director this week and we we're kind of processing some forgiveness stuff as we talked, and it was interesting the comment that she made to me. She said, you tend to get stalled, I notice, in the what and why questions. And she expounded a little bit and said what she notices is that I tend to want to analyze the situation. What happened? Why did it happen? I do all of this kind of external analysis, wanting to figure it out and take it apart. And she said, I wonder if you would be better served to focus in on the how and the who questions. Stop trying to take it all apart and figure it out, but just ask God, how do you want me to respond to this? And who are you calling me to be in this? Forgiveness isn't about the other person. Forgiveness is for me. Forgiveness is about me, a process between me and God. And I need to find out, God, who do you want to, me to be in these places where I feel hurt or stuck? Who are you calling me to be in that? How are you asking me to respond? And as I process that, I realize always, always, the answer that God gives is he summed up the entire book 
of the law, when someone asks Jesus, always, always, he comes back to love. Who do you want me to be? I want you to be a person of love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor. Love your husband, your wife, your child, your sister, your brother, your coworker, your neighbor, the person that hurt you. Love that person as yourself. That's a tall order. That's a tough order. But that is what God calls us back to in how we respond and who he asks us to be. And that's a hard process, but it is a good process. 1 Corinthians 13 gives us a little picture of what it looks like to love. And just one little snippet out of 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable, and it keeps no record of when it has been wronged. Love is not irritable, and it keeps no record of when it has been wronged. You see, I can't truly love and keep a record of wrongs at the same time. They're incompatible. I cannot truly love and keep a record, keep an account of wrongs at the same time. Those two just don't fit together. I can't be who God is asking me to be and keep an account of the ways that people have offended me because love forgives. But man, we're good at keeping those lists, aren't we? Keeping that record of wrongs, and we keep them from things as trivial as I'm irritated with you because you didn't put gas in the car to things as significant as you've wounded me. In a deep part of who I am, you've wounded me. And you know, it's okay to notice those things. I'm not telling you to just pretend that those things never happened. It's okay to name what they are. It's good and healthy to name those. But when those things become this account that you're keeping, that you're refusing to let go of, that you keep coming back to it over and over again because you want that person to pay, you want some sort of punishment, you want it to create pain for that person, then that's a record of wrong that leads to this place of bitterness and corrosion inside our soul and the heart that is trying to be soft ends up hard and cold like that stone that's in your hand. Hebrews twelve fifteen says, See to it that no, no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. That in and of itself is such a rich passage that we could spend 40 minutes just looking at that. We're not going to, but see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. This idea of a, of a bitter root growing up, man, that happens in a heart that doesn't forgive, right? And I like that analogy that God uses here, that no bitter root grows. That's an intriguing analogy for, for bitterness because bitterness is one of those things that doesn't always show up right away. It's like a root. It kind of starts underneath the surface, and the more we water it, the more it establishes itself. And you don't really know that it's happening until all of a sudden it sprouts. And once it sprouts like weeds in your garden, right, it just goes everywhere, and it's hard to pull it back, and it's hard to contain it because this root system has been established. That's kind of what, what bitterness is like. It's true of any kind of, of weed or root. It grows beneath the surface, and then it just kind of rises itself up. And you've got to attend to it if you want to take care of it. It turns a heart of flesh into a heart of stone. And unless we let it go, it will take over other areas of our life. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? What do we do with that bitter root? 
that are growing? And how do we find healing and, and forgiveness on the other side of it? I think it's, it's two things, primarily. You deal with the bitterness, first of all, by being aware of it. Looking for the places where that root system is starting to get established. So you start by noticing, taking time to slow down and look at your life and notice. Notice where your hurt keeps you stuck in a relationship, where I feel like you're unable or unwilling to move forward. There's bitterness growing there. Notice the places that you don't want to let go of those feelings of anger or resentment, where you want to punish that other person. Notice those places. Those are the roots of bitterness that are growing, that are going to take over. You can't keep that contained to one one section of your life. As much as we think this is just contained to this one relationship, mm -mm. it's a root system that's established and grows and spreads, and it will spread to the rest of your life. So notice those places. Notice the people that you avoid or neglect or want to cause pain to because of some hurt that they have given you. Those are roots of bitterness. So be aware. Notice those things. And then I know this sounds cliche and how you deal with them, but pray. That's how you deal with it. You pray. You take it back to God. Ask God to release yourself in it. Talk to him about it. Wrestle through it with him. Ask him, who, God, do I need to be in the middle of this thing and take my heart of stone and make it into a heart of flesh? Make it soft. Make it pliable. We ask him to do in ourselves what we can't possibly conjure up ourselves. We can't forgive on our own. This is the grace of God that flows to us and then through us. This is what God does inside of us. Because we pray for more than just masking the feelings or pretending that they're not there. We pray for healing. We pray that God will release us, and we pray that God releases the other person. Sometimes that one's really hard. But sometimes I've discovered it's easier to pray, God, will you release that other person, than it is to say, God, make me change my feelings towards them. Sometimes it's easier to say, God, you release them. You do what you need to do in that life. And as I pray through that process, as I'm humble and surrendering myself to that process, I realize that God begins to do something inside of me. That stone, it begins to soften just a little bit. And it begins to change and transform just a little bit. And we begin to let go of that desire to get what I'm owed. We let it go because we desire intimacy with the Father more than we desire getting what we deserve, what we're owed. We let it go because we desire that relationship with God, that intimacy with God more than I desire being bound to this person and demanding that I get what I'm owed. See, God uses these places in our life in significant ways to shape us and to mold us and to form us. And I'm learning, so slowly learning, that this is a training ground. These areas of forgiveness, it's a training ground. The more opportunities we have to forgive, the more places of hurt, the more opportunity there is for God to do something big in our own lives because those are the spaces that God fills inside of us. There's a book um, called Total Forgiveness by R.T. Kendall. If you're looking to read more on the subject, it's a great book. Highly recommend it. And it says this. There's one quote in there that says, the greater the sin you must forgive, 
the greater the measure of the spirit that will come to you. The greater the sin you must forgive, the greater the measure of the spirit that will come to you. The more space we have in our lives to process that hurt, the more space there is that the spirit can come and fill us and change us and be inside of us and make us into those irresistible people of forgiveness and grace. He takes the heart of stone and he makes it a heart of flesh. That's what irresistible forgiveness does. Irresistible forgiveness requires letting go of what we're owed. It also requires receiving and extending grace. Receiving and extending grace. Next blank there if you're following along. Irresistible forgiveness is about living a life of grace. That's what makes it irresistible, that life of grace. When we forgive, we extend grace to the people around us. Again, drawing from this book, Total Forgiveness, um, R.T. Kendall outlines 10, 10 steps of what total forgiveness is. Not necessarily steps, but, but things that define what total forgiveness looks like. And we're going to run through those really quickly. First of all, total forgiveness is being aware of what someone has done and still forgiving them. See, total forgiveness isn't denial. Don't mistake repression for forgiveness. You can't just push it aside and pretend that it wasn't ever there. I know, I've been there. That story that I told you, I did that for a really long time. That wasn't forgiveness. I just pushed it down and marched on, but there was no grace in that. There was no grace for me. There was no grace for the other people involved. Total forgiveness means naming what it is, but choosing to forgive anyway. Number two, total forgiveness is choosing to keep no record of wrongs. We just talked about that. Take that record of wrongs and tear it up. That's what total forgiveness looks like. Irresistible forgiveness looks like choosing to keep no record of wrongs. Number three, it's refusing to punish. That we relinquish the right to punish ourselves. Does it mean that there are no consequences? No. Sometimes there are consequences for what people have done and that needs to follow through. It doesn't mean there aren't, no, there aren't any consequences, but it does mean that I re- relinquished my right to be the one who inflicts punishment on the other person. Number four, total forgiveness is not retelling what they did. Not retelling what they did. Yeah. That's a big one, right? Especially in Christian circles, we need to vent. And so what do we do? We make it a prayer request. I'm going to tell you my prayer request. And then we proceed to tell all about the way that this person hurt us or offended us. Now, I'm not negating that there is an appropriate place for therapeutic processing of a hurt that has happened, but you know the difference in your heart. You know when you're telling because you want to injure someone's reputation or because you want other people to know what has happened or you want people to get on your side versus an honest process that you're doing. So total forgiveness says, I'm not going to keep retelling what they did for the intent to harm the other person. That's not what grace looks like. There's nothing irresistible about that. Total forgiveness says, I'm not going to retell. Total forgiveness also says that you are merciful. It's being merciful. Isn't it ironic that we always want justice for you and mercy for me? Total forgiveness says there's mercy for both of us. Total forgiveness is also number six, graciousness. Graciousness, mercy and grace, they go hand in hand. And oftentimes what graciousness is, the way we can live it out really practically is in what we choose not to say, even if what we could say is true. It's a huge way to extend grace. 
in what we choose not to say about someone, even if what we could say is true. Extend grace. Total forgiveness is also an inner condition. Remember, it's not about the other person. Forgiveness is for me. Forgiveness is about me. It's what happens in my own heart. And this is why total forgiveness can happen even if there's not reconciliation. Because this is more about me and God than it is me and the other person. And clearly, you'd love to have reconciliation. But sometimes that's just not possible to be reconciled to the other person that's been the offender. But you can still have total forgiveness inside because it is an inner condition. It's not contingent upon reconciliation with the other person. It's contingent upon that reconciliation between me and God and who I am as a person and how God is calling me to respond in that situation. It allows the Holy Spirit to do a work inside of me. It is an inner condition. Total forgiveness is also about forgiving God. It's a big one. Sometimes we realize that inside we're holding a grudge against God for what it is that happened. Couldn't have you done it differently? Couldn't have it worked out in a different way? I encourage you, beat on his chest a little bit if you need to. And work through the process of forgiving God too. And finally, total forgiveness is forgiving ourselves. Because total forgiveness is not only about extending grace, but it's also about receiving grace from the ultimate giver of grace. There's a story in John chapter 8 about a woman who was caught in adultery. And Jesus is in the temple and he's teaching. And next thing you know, these Pharisees burst into the temple court and they take this woman, they throw her down in front of him. And they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says she needs to be stoned. She needs to die. What do you say? What are you going to do about it? Now, mind you, these Pharisees, they didn't really care one iota about this woman. They didn't really care about what had happened. They were just trying to trap Jesus. She was just a pawn in their game. But still, they have this opportunity. So they throw this woman down. Jesus, what are you going to do? And so Jesus, being the weird guy that he usually was, he was a little quirky. (laughs) In a good way, but he was a little quirky. So Jesus gets down and he starts writing in the dirt. And I kind of imagine that scene in my mind. And I think they're probably all there like, what, what, (laughs) what? what's happening? Like you're just writing in the dirt. And these Pharisees and they're there and they have these rocks in their hands because they're ready to go. They're ready to go. They was wrong. They're ready to stone her. They want to hear what Jesus has to say. And so they say, Jesus, we demand an answer. What do you want us to do? And so Jesus just stands up and he looks at them and he says, all right, stone her. The only one who can cast the first stone is the one who is without sin. Then he gets back down and starts writing in the dirt again. And one by one, the accusers, they leave. Until the next thing you know, it's just Jesus and this woman. And she looks at him and he looks at her and he says, woman, where'd they go? Did no one condemn you? I can imagine the astonishment in her voice as she realizes, no one. And Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. Go 
and sin no more. It's a beautiful story. I like to imagine those stories, and it makes me wonder sometimes, what was it that Jesus was writing in the, in the dirt? Some Bible scholars conjecture that maybe what he was writing was a list of the sins of the people that were in the crowd, those that were ready to throw that stone. The sins of those who had present, those that had been so ready and willing to condemn because there was right and there was wrong and there was a violation that had happened. And clearly this is what the law says. And so we're ready. We're ready to give justice its due course. But as Jesus wrote in the dirt, if in fact he was writing the list of their sins, they realized they needed to confront their own stuff inside of them. And they began to see themselves for who they were, and somehow they weren't quite so quick to be ready to condemn someone else. And the rocks began to fall. They resonate. I realize that quite often I am way too quick to be the one who wants to throw that stone. You owe me. There's a right and there's a wrong, and you've crossed that line. And so I'm ready. I'm ready to throw that stone. And then somehow, by the grace of God, he lets me see my own stuff inside of my own life. And I realize I have no right. And I have to drop my rock. I also wonder, as I think about that story, what that woman was feeling. As she was brought in, thrown in the middle of this public place, passage doesn't really tell us much about her. I don't know what her attitude was. Is it possible that she was angry and defiant as they threw her in? It's possible, but in my mind's eye, I don't see her that way so much as I see her as worn and weary and fearful and ashamed. I see her in that courtyard, and she's surrounded by all of her accusers, and her secrets are revealed, and she feels the full weight of her sin and her embarrassment, and her secrets, and her hurt, and her shame. And then there's that eerie silence as Jesus stoops down. And I kind of wonder, like, was she, was she like peeking out between her fingers, trying to see what, what's happening, wondering what's going on? And she just sees Jesus calmly writing in the dirt. And next thing you know, she hears the sound of the rocks hitting the ground. The rocks that should have been aimed at her, they just hit the ground. And then she looks at Jesus, and she hears the words of forgiveness and the words of grace, the words that quite literally give her her life back when he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That is irresistible forgiveness and irresistible grace. And I resonate with this part of the story as well because I've known the sweet freedom in my own life of those rocks hitting the ground, the places where I should have been condemned, the places where I should have been punished. I've known that first stone 
that was never cast. Times by all systems of justice, I should have been punished. I should have paid the price. And then Jesus just comes and says, neither do I condemn you. And in those moments, I taste the mystery of grace. I wonder how many of us can find ourselves in this story this morning. How many of us can see ourselves on both sides, both as the one who's getting ready to throw that first stone because there is someone who deserves to pay. And if at the same time we can also feel the way it feels when that first stone drops and we realize that by grace we don't have to bear the punishment. We're spared the brunt of that first stone. I want you to look at that stone that you have in your hand again. It's your first stone. That's what this stone represents. It is your first stone. And as you look at it, I want you to think about the times that you've screwed up. Who have you hurt with your words? The things that you've said or maybe didn't say that wounded someone else. As you look at that rock, I want you to think about the ways that you've wounded someone else through your actions. Again, through the things that maybe you did or the things that you neglected to do. Who have you damaged? How is your selfishness or your pride inflicted harm on someone else, making them feel devalued or, or less than as a person? Where have you missed the mark? What are your secrets? If you were thrown in that temple court, what is it, the thing that you most fear? The public finding out about. And I ask you to consider, as you consider that list of your own offenses, I, I ask you to consider who you're poised, ready to throw this first stone at. Who are you unwilling to forgive? Wanting them to suffer. Wanting them to be punished. Refusing to let them off the hook for what you owe me. This is your first stone. And you need to decide. Are you going to cast it? Are you going to drop it? The choice is yours. I want you to look at the stone again in a new way as well. This is your first stone in another way. This is the first stone, the one that falls to the ground next to you. Because you're not condemned. Because Jesus says, I'm not going to cast it at you. I've forgiven you. I've given you a clean slate. I don't accuse. I don't condemn. It's your first stone. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are like that adulterous woman and at the end when it's silent and all the accusers are gone and it's just you and Jesus left, I want you to imagine looking into the eyes of Jesus himself. Imagine that moment for just a minute. Close your eyes and imagine that moment of looking right into the eyes of Jesus. And as you look into his eyes, keep your eyes closed and just imagine him speaking these words to you. And he says to you, I see you in your mess right now. I see all of your secrets revealed. I see how you are worn and weary. You are fully 
exposed before him. And you are ready to receive your punishment. But child, I love you. And so I've taken your place. I've asked them to cast their rocks at me so that you don't need to be condemned. My body broken. My blood poured out. The price has been paid. Justice has been served. And in this, you are free. No accusation. No condemnation. Just go and sin no more.